The following podcast will contain spoilers and explicit language. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of Yeah, It's That Bad. My name is Joel. I'm Martin. This is a show that looks at supposedly bad movies and asks the question, is it really that bad? And what that boils down to is that we look at movies that are on Rotten Tomatoes and reevaluate that score. Does it really deserve to be that low? Tonight's movie is 2009's Antichrist. Directed by Lars von Trier, starring Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg. Antichrist is a 2009 art film. This movie currently holds a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes. How about a plot synopsis? A couple lose their young son when he falls out of a window while they are having sex in another room. The mother's grief consigns her to hospital, but her therapist husband brings her home intent on treating her depression himself. To confront her fears, they go to stay at their remote cabin in the woods, Eden, where something untold had previous summer. <laughs> Told in four chapters with a prologue and epilogue, the film details acts of lustful cruelty as the man and woman unfold the darker side of nature outside and within. Whoa. Okay, Antichrist. Tonight's movie was sponsored by our very own Buxomia. Hey guys, I'm writing to you from the past, the ancient time of 2012, when I recommended this movie. Spooky. Has it been that long? (laughs) It has, hasn't it? It has been that long. That is scary. So anyway, I sponsored two episodes because you guys are not only entertaining, but reliable, and that kind of hard work and dedication should be rewarded. The first was Expendables because I really wanted to give you guys a fun movie. Did you notice Find Em, Catch Em, Kill Em was the line in Expendables 2 trailer? And I was giggling like an idiot listening to that episode. Then Halloween came around and you watched The Human Centipede. This is a movie I absolutely love because of Dieter's performance. He's like a gaunt Christopher Walken and I love it. I heard you all bitch and moan about how it wasn't disturbing enough. So, okay then, let's get disturbing. Let's get next level disturbing. Let's watch Lars von Trier's Antichrist. This pestilent, pernicious piece of perturbing photography perpetuates petrifying palpitations and pollutes potent perception. Basically, the movie is a life-draining piece of garbage. (laughs) The Fox part is a relieving bit of comedy, I'll admit. But strap in, boys, because if this doesn't unnerve you. Nothing will. At the time of writing this, it has been 100 episodes. I just want to say thank you personally for making this last year a fun-filled one. I saw movies I never would have watched and approached movies with thoughts that never would have occurred to me. Oh, I want to guess what you guys look like. You're all in black cloaks with long brown wigs (laughs) (laughs) and a pilgrim-style black hat and a mask that is fashioned like the face of Guy Fawkes. Under the wigs, you all have short platinum blonde hair. From your biggest fan, Stan. (laughs) Thanks again, guys. Love you and will continue to be a loyal listener. Buxomia. Okay, Martin, Antichrist, what's your history with this thing? I've seen this movie. This was the second time I've seen it. The first time I saw it was probably when it came out. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, WTF, bro. Yeah, that's that's your answer? Yeah. I, I mean, granted, part of it was definitely disturbing, but I just, I had a difficult time digesting what I saw. I remember when this movie came out, people were just going wild about how disturbing were they hemming and hawing they were 
hooting and hollering about it. Were they hooting the blowfish? Absolutely. And I was curious about it, but this wasn't the kind of movie I was going to go out of my way to see, knowing that it was a shock value kind of movie. I generally don't like those kind of things, like kids. Remember kids? I loved kids, but I saw it when I was a kid, so. This is amazing. No, well, that's the kind I of thing. I saw that like... when I was a kid, and even then, I was like, this is just shock value. Oh, really? You you had your, your snooty critic nose turned up in the air, and you're like, uh, they're doing this for shock value. That's exactly what I said. Yeah, so I wasn't going out of my way to see this, but hey, here we are, Antichrist. So, uh, Martin, spoiler warning on this one? Absolutely. I mean, should people see this? That's not up for us to decide. <laughs> yeah. It really isn't. Warning, if you ever decide to see this movie, please know up front that this is a disturbing movie with some serious, gory parts, I guess. Would yeah, you say that? Yeah, that? that go above and beyond what is gore, like what would be considered torture porn. Yeah, and they push nudity goes, to new heights. Yeah, it goes above above and beyond that. Far above and beyond that, I'll say. Yeah, so we're going to get into the nitty-gritty details in this review. You have been warned. This movie's rough. Way worse than Human Centipede. This movie lasts the Human Centipede. Okay, let's do it. We always do the top of the show. We can discuss the actors one by one, and we'll see how you thought they did. There's not much to go on here. There's only two people in this movie. Yeah. First up, Willem Dafoe. Triumphant return! Willem Dafoe. Last time I saw this guy, he was a cross-dressing FBI man. Now? A man of many hats? Yeah. (laughs) He's a great actor. Willem Dafoe is very talented. Would you say this is a daring performance for Willem Dafoe? No. (laughs) No, No, I wouldn't. I I think Willem Dafoe is, like, willing to do anything. He'll just, he'll try it. I thought he was pretty good in this. Did a good job, I thought. He he was disturbing at times. Have you ever seen something where he was a bad actor? Got me there, Martin. I don't know. I can't think of anything. I can't think of a single instance. He may be the greatest actor of all time. Is that what you're trying to tell me, Martin? No. Are you sure? That's what it sounds like you're trying to tell me. No, I said that he's in that... He's in that... He, he, he's in the same league. Michael Sheen sphere? My, I mean... Whoa, careful, Martin. In the, in the painting... Don't tread on me. In the painting, the philosophers were like, Socrates is like at the top or whatever. He's he's probably in the same pantheon, but I don't think he's at the top. Okay, next up, Charlotte Gainsbourg. Or Burrow, I don't know how to pronounce correctly. She was really good. She had a really difficult role to fulfill in this movie, I thought. She had to be believable as somebody suffering extreme emotional grief, depression, anxiety. Sanity. And then she had to emulate a lapse, like a psychotic break. I thought that she did an an, an incredible job. Yeah, especially towards the end, she was pretty wild. When she's screaming in the woods, like, where are you? I was like, this is this is intense. So pretty much, there's only two people in this movie. It's almost like it's a play or something. And they did a really good job. They picked good people to be in this movie. Right, right. Okay, that's pretty much it. Let's get into the brief history of Antichrist. Antichrist started with the idea of making a horror film. Lars von Trier thought it was a good idea to start with a certain genre and choose horror cinema because the genre is such that you can put a lot of very, very strange images in a horror film. He had recently seen several contemporary Japanese horror films such as Ring and Dark Water, from which he drew inspiration. The title was the first thing that was written for the film. Antichrist was originally scheduled for production in 2005, but its executive producer, Peter Albeck Jensen, accidentally revealed the film's plan revelation that the Earth
Earth was created by Satan and not by God. Von Trier was furious and decided to delay the shoot so he could rewrite the script. In 2007, Von Trier announced that he was suffering from depression and it was possible that he never would be able to make another film. I assume that Antichrist will be my next film, but right now I don't know, he told the Danish newspaper Politiken. Von Trier had not recovered completely from his depression when filming started. He repeatedly excused himself to the actors for being in the mental condition he was and was not able to operate the camera as he usually does. The film premiered during the competition portion of the 2009 Cannes Film Festival to a polarized response from the audience. At least four people fainted during a preview due to the film's explicit violence. I cannot believe that. They fainted? They lost consciousness? Yeah, the French. I thought they were impervious to these things. The film won the award for Best Cinematographer at 2009 European Film Awards, shared with Slumdog Millionaire as both films were shot by Anthony Dodd Mantle. It was nominated for Best Director and Best Actress, but the awards lost to Michael Haneke for The White Ribbon and Kate Winslet for The Reader, respectively. According to a June 2009 article in the Danish newspaper Politiken, a video game called Eden, based on the film, was in the works. It was to start where the film ended. It will be a self-therapeutic journey into your own darkest fears and will break the boundaries of what you can and cannot do in video games, said video game director Morton Iverson. As of 2011, Zentropia Games are out of business and Eden has been canceled. Okay, well, whoops. Oops. This movie had an $11 million budget. How much did it make worldwide? 15? (laughs) You wish it made $2 million. Doesn't he get like tax breaks though from the Danish government? Is that how he... It's not Uwe Boll. Okay, so this movie starts off in a different way than our usual movies do. There was text on a screen, but it's very different text. Art. This is art house film style starting. Yes. This movie is one of those RD movies that's split up into chapters. RD Lang movies? Yeah, RD Lang was in this in the beer league, (laughs) drinking it up. Yeah, this is one of those movies where it's like, epilogue, chapter one, chapter two... What do you think of this style of movie making? I know Wes Anderson did it. Uh, like, I... He did it in uh, Royal Tenenbaums. I like it. I'm okay with it. It makes it like it's a play. And that works better for some movies than What others. about the argument that it kind of ruins the, the flow of a film? Where you have these start and stops. If it's done purposefully, and that's how he wants to tell his story or her story, who, depending on who the director is, that's fine. That's it, fine with me. It's a stylistic choice, and he thinks that it helps separate it in a purposeful way for you to digest the story. Is it any different than in movies when they're like... Doof. Five days to go. I think that that's Four worse. Four days to go. I, I think that that's worse. Like, 28 days later. 27 days. Like, <laughs> stop. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, stop, I don't care. Like, I, I get it. When you go to black, it's a day later. You don't you don't have to, like, put giant text on the screen. It's unnecessary. But, Martin, we love black screens with white text on them. As, as a group here, we do. But as far as telling story goes, I don't know if it's necessary. Well, anyway, after the title card, this movie's opening sequence, I'm going to say it right now, is gorgeous. Beautiful. It looks like he's using one of those those new red cameras that shoot at 10, at, trillion. At 10 trillion frames 
a second and I can like see like energy flowing through like water droplets, <laughs> like at the molecular level. <laughs> it's incredible looking. Yeah. The opening sequence is in black and white and it's pretty much the interior of Willem Dafoe's house while he's having sex with his wife in the shower right? and uh, all around the house. I would say this movie's worth seeing just for this opening sequence. It's incredibly well done. As far as something that is aesthetically pleasing, the way the shots are set up, I mean, it's incredible. I was taken aback because, quite frankly, I'm unaccustomed to watching movies made by competent filmmakers. Yeah, so I was like, oh, what? What is this? <laughs> This movie has unsimulated sex. Nothing's left to the imagination at all. Like, at, not even close. Well, what do we see, Martin? You see his penis going into her vagina in super, super slow motion. Extreme close-up. Extreme close-up, and then, like, slamming it, like, back and forth. I'm like, what? Why? Yeah, it's a straight-up pornographic shot of intercourse, of penis going into a vagina. See, like, pornographic is, I don't think, the right word for it. No, no, this is, this is way too artistic to be pornographic. It's, right. it's, it's, it's not even even close to pornographic like this isn't erotic it's not like i'm not sexually you know stimulated by it i'm just kind of like oh look at the water like i was more interested in the toothbrush hitting her arm that was incredible best scene in any movie i've ever seen in my life like okay just to set it up they're in the shower having sex with each other he hits a toothbrush and it falls in super slow motion onto her arm and it hits and it like shows energy ripples going through like her skin it's ah oh, it's awesome looking yeah this needs to be seen to be believed especially if you want to see willem the foes penis. I don't know why you'd want to. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I guess some people would want to fulfill that dream. But, you know, Martin, even though this opening scene was in black and white, I just assumed that they were in a blue room when they were having sex. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, their entire apartment was blue. Yeah. It was a blue shower, <laughs> yeah. blue bedroom. Blue lights. Blue lights on everything. They had they had blue spotlights on their bed. So they're sitting there they're having like ultra slow-mo sex and their little baby toddler boy goes out of his crib. He's being mischievous. He's walking around. And he looks at to their room. Yeah, he opens the door to their bedroom while these two are having the most insane slow motion sex ever caught on film. And this little baby, he just turns to the camera <laughs> and smiles at us. We fell to our knees in laughter. <laughs> that was totally unintentional, right? No, it was not. Like, it was not meant for him to... I mean, he was a baby. He didn't know what they were doing. It almost like insinuated that he knew what was going on. Yeah, and it, it was like, nice job, dad. <laughs> Give it to her. <laughs> It's like a one and a half year old toddler. Yeah, no. he's, like, he's like, nice, bro. Exactly. <laughs> It was hilarious that the, the look on that kid's face was just priceless. Well, anyway, so while they're having sex, the little kid, he picks up a chair, he right. puts it over to the window, crawls up to it, and he decides to uh, be a man on a ledge, and he goes out on the snowy, slippery ledge. Why don't you step away from that ledge, my friend? Cut ties with all the lies that you've been living in. Well, he had someone like that. Yeah. Just to understand. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so they're having sex, and they're completely oblivious to the kid and what he's doing. I prefer them to be completely unoblivious. Like, they're having sex, but they're staring at him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're both like, check it out. <laughs> yeah, so the little kid is on a ledge, and apparently this little kid doesn't know what the hell he's doing, because he slips, I guess, he trips and falls, and we get to watch this really painful scene of this kid slowly plunging to his death. It's crazy the way this is shot. This reminds me of Citizen Kane, like the intro scene with the stupid snow globe falling to the ground. Yeah. It's like the same kind of thing. Uh, there's a shot of, of him falling to his death, a little kid, from a wide shot where you see him with his arms spread out. It's, be it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful, but it's like, it's painful to watch. 
Oh, this is a rough, uh, rough stuff to start your movie with, huh? It really sets the, you know what? It sets the tone for this movie. It does a really good job of letting it, you, you know, know. It really does. Right off the bat. You're in for a bumpy ride. That buckle this, up. Yeah, buckle up and strap yourself in with Velcro shoes. This is going to be an intense ride. Yeah, this movie does not hold your hand at all. No. Any other movie, this, this should only be hinted at. We wouldn't see the kid plummeting to his death. Is this? And it, it almost glorifies it the way it's shot, too. Is this sincere? Sensationalism, yes, like yeah, uh, yeah. by definition, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, why shoot it in that glorious slow mo with that classical music playing behind it? Uh, I mean, the argument could be beauty in something that normally would not be beautiful. Okay, you can make that argument. I'm just saying, I'm not saying that you should or that that's even what's happening. I'm just saying the argument could be made. Okay, so this little baby boy he falls to his death, and it cuts to the funeral. Willem the foe and his wife Charlotte are walking around, and this is shot. Shot. Unbelievable how beautiful this is shot of Willem Dafoe walking next to the casket, crying over his dead child. We know, Martin, as you and I, we usually joke about this, like, oh, only a weakling would cry over his dead child, like in Saw. Yeah. This is the instance when, this is okay, go ahead, cry over your dead kid. Yeah, he- his, This is serious. No, this is a super painful experience. I can't even imagine what this would be like to, to be a parent and have this happen. I mean, like, we don't even have children, so we can't- can't really relate to what they could ever feel. But, and, and, and I hope no one ever has to feel like that. But I mean, his wife just, she fainted just right there in the funeral pr- like pr- procession. She just collapsed to the ground. And like the way that they shot it, oh they, my sh- God. they shot it in this like front lit kind of way that makes all the other people look anonymous. Like they have no facial features. It's just Willem Dafoe and his wife. And they're just in agony. I was stunned. I was like, damn, man, this guy, he knows how to direct. I haven't seen many Lars von Trier movies, but you're more familiar with his work? Not much more familiar. I've seen parts of Melancholia. They're beautiful. The, the man knows how to set up a shot. Oh, like Michael Bay? Yeah, yeah. He's just like Michael Bay. <laughs> he used lens flares every five seconds. He used a lens flare flare in a funeral. He's the art house Michael Bay? Right. I wonder who you could say gets that title. He's the art house Michael Bay. That's something Wes, to think about. Wes Anderson? Hmm. I don't know. That's debatable. We then cut after this scene to the hospital where it's a day or two later. His wife is waking up and they... They start going through the process of working through her grief specifically. So we've just taken Willem Dafoe out of the grieving process. Like he's no longer upset about his dead child. It's bizarre, actually. No, he doesn't give a damn. Like at first he cried, but then he just like he just snapped out of it completely. Very weird character. He's a psychiatrist, and he decides that who better to diagnose his wife than himself? Right? That, that what makes... could possibly go wrong? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I really like that she goes, "Hey, shouldn't you not?" treat your own family members? And he goes, hey, theoretically, I agree. But in this one instance, <laughs> I think I can solve your problems. What do you think? At the end of the day, he doesn't give a damn about her, okay? He's, I'm, I'm gonna make the argument that he's just using her as a proxy so that he doesn't have to feel the death of his son. I can see that. Yeah, I can like, totally see like that. Like, that, that's his coping mechanism. She, she's a distraction. Absolutely, absolutely. And she is falling apart, completely falling apart mentally. Understandably. Yeah, so, because her, she blames herself for the son dying, and that's pretty much the setup of this movie, is Willem trying to cure her of her depression after the death of their son. And, uh... (laughs) 
the res- we get to see the results of the the experiment, see if it works or not. Yeah, fruits of his labor. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'll crack the case. It'll, it'll all work out really well in the end. Yeah, I'm sure they'll both be the the paragon of mental health at the end of this movie. So I'm God now, Lauren. He might as well have said that. Essentially, he's saying I don't give a damn what anybody else says. I'm better than everyone. I'm more powerful than everyone, and I can do this. I'm like, oh wow, I'm God now. Right off the bat, we're not even ten minutes into the movie, and he's saying I'm God now. So this movie goes into a lot of weird territory, pretty uncomfortable stuff, very strange things. For the next 15 minutes, we go back to their house and she just essentially is having panic attack after panic attack inter- she, she, interwoven with with like forced sex. Yes. Like there's a scene in it where she throws her drugs away and she has like a relapse or something where she goes into the bathroom and starts banging her head on the toilet. Relapse like, like the Eminem album? Exactly like that. It was that. just like that, right? So Willem Dafoe runs in, grabs her, stops her from banging her head against the toilet and just like rapes her, I guess, or has sex with her. And then, he, and, and then he's like, that was the dumbest thing I could have done. I'm I can't like, believe I did that. Yeah. And I'm like, why did you do that? <laughs> what, what, what? I thought you were a professional. What inside of him made him think that that was the right thing to do? Oh, she's an extremely emotionally violent vulnerable woman who is dealing with the death of her infant child. Let me forcibly have sex with her. Let me stick it in. Good job, bro. I'm sure that helped. Yeah, so this movie goes down a pretty dark path, pretty twisted psychological path. Well, he starts like trying to create this exposure cognitive behavioral therapy pyramid hierarchy where like the the thing that she is most scared of or has the most anxiety or fear over or aversion to goes atop and what she has the least aversion to goes at the bottom and it turns out that towards the top is this place called Eden, which is this cabin where she was supposed to be writing a book. Well, they decide to go up there and she does not want to go at all. No, not not even close. She has like this super strong, paranoid, anxious, delusional aversion to this place. <laughs> and we definitely find out why. And it's uh, it's understandable. Absolutely understandable. But he's like, oh, I'll, I'll do like exposure therapy and I'll expose her gradually to this place. I think that this is insane. She's what, been grieving for a week? The death of her son? A day. One day. Yeah, like this is literally insane. Like he needs to be put away. He's crazy. Crazy. No rational human being would say, get over it, bro. We're going to go. Hey, that's pretty much it, right? We're going to go into the woods, make you face your fears, and it'll be good as new. That's like the parent who's like, my three-year-old son learns how to swim when I throw them into the ocean and walk away. You know, oh, they drowned? How'd that happen? Like, it's 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 that kind of scenario where it's like, sink or swim, bro. So they go out to this place, Eden, and I don't know where this place is, but it is remote. Yeah, well, where is it like in the middle of Canada or, or something? Pacific Northwest? They filmed this in somewhere in like Denmark, didn't they? Dark European forest? Yeah, this is like the Black Forest in Germany or something. I mean... Yeah, so th- yeah, this cabin is out in the middle of nowhere, out in the woods. They're totally, completely alone out there. There's another is, human being for miles. The way that this movie is shot, it makes them look and feel tiny in comparison to this giant expanse of dark forest around them. So like, they are isolated. Like, when they go in there, my mind is like, okay, the rest of the world no longer exists. It's just this forest and these two people. Yeah, well, she does not want to be there. She kind of has this dark past with the place. Willem Dafoe, he's walking around, getting a lay of the land. He goes into this clearing or something. He gets into this clearing and, and amongst these dew-dropped, thistle-blown ferns is is a doe. And the doe looks at him and then turns away to, to scamper out of this clearing. And there is a stillborn, half-born... <laughs> 
fetus <laughs> of of a deer hanging out of this deer's vagina. Yeah, and, just and, hanging and, out. And, and, and it's, it's just this dead, necrotic, ero- it, it's disgusting. It is disgusting. Yeah, and Willem just stands there and he's like, oh, wow. He's like, oh, nature, beauty, truth. <laughs> <laughs> So this happens a couple of times in this movie where Willem Dafoe sees something strange or, and and there's like this halo of light behind him every time. What does that mean? What's going on there? I have no idea. I I can't really decipher what any of this symbolism could mean. Like I have ideas, but I have no idea if they're even close to right. I find that every time I try to uh, put the pieces together of what I think is going on in this movie, it just falls apart every time. This movie I think was made in a way that Lars von Trier does not care if you understand at all. Because this movie is very abstract. It's doing a lot of weird stuff. So right off the bat, you know, this place is called Eden. Okay, fine. Adam and Eve story. You got a man, you got a woman, you got a weird tree. You got all this stuff going on there. But when you sit there and you analyze that metaphor, it doesn't really work. No, it doesn't. It doesn't fit to the biblical kind of uh, structure for the Eden story in Genesis that, you know, most people know about. So they hike into this remote cabin and he gets her to the cabin and she runs through the grass. I guess the grass for some reason is like bad. I, I didn't. What? The grass. She didn't like walking through the, through, the, through the grass. She was like terrified of standing in it. That was like the first cognitive behavioral therapy like exposure thing he did. He like built rocks. Yes. And so he has her walk between them barefoot and I just thought that this was a waste of time. This was stupid. Why? Because I don't think I care at all. Well, I mean, it does give birth to another interesting scene. This 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 begs the question. Okay, so when they're doing this thing with the rock and she's walking left and right between the rocks and she's scared. When she finally makes it, they're cheering. They're like, yeah, you did it. Congratulations. Oh, and then, and then the- all of a sudden, this half-living baby bird falls out of a tree right next to them and crash lands at their feet. And we get this extreme close-up of this dying bird as it's twitching. All these ants are crawling over its face. Eating it. Eating it alive. And then a hawk swoops in and rips the bird to shreds in front of their eyes. That's a heavy-handed metaphor for their actual baby. Is that right? even a metaphor? Like, that that's so heavy-handed. Like it's not even really a metaphor anymore. It's just oh, it's the exact same thing. And B, is this weird just for weirdness' sake? What do you think? Does this serve a purpose? It was so over the top that I that we we started laughing. Yeah, I laughed out loud during this. Um, the, it's very interesting imagery. Don't get me wrong, but it is silly at a certain level. I have trouble like seeing this in a way that's serious because it's so slap you in the face with its its heavy-handed blatantness. Is it necessary? I don't know. Is any of this really necessary in this scene? Like this. Stu- stupid walking between the rocks and having this metaphor. And I mean, that's really unnecessary. And that's not the only time they do this. They do this throughout the entire movie. Okay, so Willem Dafoe finds out that she was not writing her book and that what happened in Eden was essentially she heard this baby crying in the woods very loudly, like it was echoing and it was blatant. And when she found their son, he was not crying. The crying was coming from elsewhere and she could not find where it was coming from. It was super loud and echoing and then stopped the last time she was up there and she decided never to go back there again. That's why she didn't like the place. And Willem Dafoe's like, okay, so you you had an experience that you couldn't rationalize, and so you developed this fear of the place. I'm like, yeah, because she is having like a hallucination. Like, that's an understandable experience to have. This character is just getting crazier and crazier, right? Willem Dafoe's character? Both of them. The both of them are getting crazier and crazier. They are getting crazier and crazier. I think Willem Dafoe is... Neither of them is likable, I don't think. No, on purpose. They're not supposed to be likable. So it's around this point where uh, 
Charlotte Gainsbourg, she says this quote that pretty much sums up the entire movie. Martin, did you know that nature is Satan's church? Yeah, I I didn't, I was unaware of that. What do you think about that? What are your thoughts there? That's insepid. <laughs> Moronic? I don't know. It makes no sense. Like, is she, what is she trying to say? Like, at the base level, like nature's cruel or that people just have like these animal instincts and that they're cruel and, and wrong? I don't, I don't uh, get You're it. giving that a lot of, uh... <laughs> a lot of credit, a lot yeah. of thought. Maybe I shouldn't give it that much thought. I mean, I don't understand what she's trying to say by that. Like, when she said it, we just looked at each other and we're like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, pretty much. That, huh? <laughs> well, we're, right after she says that, Willem Dafoe has another encounter with an animal in the woods, which I thought was interesting because only Willem Dafoe sees all these animals in the woods. She never sees them, which I think is kind of interesting. So he gets back to following uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg. Apparently, she believes that she's cured at this point. Like, she just no longer is exhibiting any fear towards anything that's happening around her, where before she was paranoid. I believe that she's, she's crazy. She's all for the better. Right, yeah. That, I thought the same thing. I was like, she's oh. totally better. I was like, oh, thank God. She did So it. he's following her and he goes through this clearing again where there's ferns and he sees ferns rustling. And this is, I remember hearing stories about when they were showing this at different film festivals and people loved this scene. They like made t-shirts for it. Maybe they fainted at this. So he pulls the ferns back and you see this fox and it's this red fox laying on the ground, biting at its own abdomen, essentially disemboweling itself, tears a piece of flesh off in slow motion, looks at the camera and then utters in a deep baritone slow-mo voice, chaos reigns. Yeah, chaos reigns. What's going on? What the hell does that mean? Did he hear that? That's one of the questions I have of this movie. Are these things actually happening or are they just crazy? Are they just hallucinating? Did that fox really say chaos reigns or is he just going crazy? I I mean, I have no idea. I want to say that that probably actually happened. It looks pretty stupid when it's talking, when the fox speaks. It is. Just considering like what happens in the rest of this movie, though, I want to say that that's actually happening. And he doesn't respond to it at all. He just looks at it and he's like, huh. he's like, he's like, oh, huh. okay. Huh. I wonder what that means. Something to think about when we get out of here. After this stuff, Willem Dafoe goes into the attic of this little shack cabin and he finds some disturbing stuff up there. It essentially looks like it's a serial killer's den with all these weird drawings from the Middle Ages of people getting tortured and killed. It was women getting tortured and killed. And, yes. then, and then women casting spells. The one thing I thought was really cool about this scene is that uh, Willem Dafoe finds a book in the back of the room and he opens it up and it's her dissertation on whatever gynocide in the Middle Ages. And it starts off single spaced. Pretty good. Single spaced Times New Roman font. Then it gets double spaced, Courier New. And it's just getting, just the spacing gets wider and wider, crazier and crazier. It's, it's handwritten and her handwriting gets crazier and crazier and by the end of it it's completely illegible like a child wrote it yeah it's illegible and it doesn't even look like it's actual letters just movements of in lines i thought that was really creepy looking that looked awesome that's a hint to show you that perhaps this woman didn't just go crazy now like this was always there in her brain she was crazy for a long time before this he just never noticed because he was a bad father and husband didn't pay attention it's at this point that we get the idea or it's brought to our attention that she believes that she is probably evil because she's a woman and she needs to embrace this. So rather than psychologically trying to fight that idea or trying to see that that's not true, her method of dealing with that conflict in her is to just embrace it and to accept it and say, yeah, I'm evil and I deserve to be punished. And so when she's sleeping with Willem Dafoe forcibly throughout this entire ordeal, she's having him hit her and, you know, smack her in the face and like 
punish her and she wants to be hurt because she feels like, I guess she feels like she deserves it. I don't understand that. Okay, so she runs out into the woods, I guess, because Willem Dafoe doesn't want to have sex with her? No, he says he doesn't love her anymore and she freaks out. Why would he say that? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. While they're having sex, maybe I don't love you anymore. Why would he say that? He's a real charmer. That's an awkward place to to say that to somebody, isn't it? He's a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and he lacks insight into himself. It's, like, bizarre. Well, she doesn't take this kindly. She runs off into the woods. Willem Dafoe chases after her. He finds her at the bottom of this evil tree. (laughs) What's she doing, Martin? Carnal desires awaken. She is feverishly masturbating. Feverishly. At the base of this eroding mass of roots and, like, a tree stump. Devil tree. So the Willem Dafoe runs down there naked and is like, get out of the way, and just starts having sex with her and the music swells there's this background of this like you know demon choir going <laughs> yeah. oh and there's just like all these dead women bodies amassed into this tangle of roots this looks beautiful amazing imagery this is what's on the movie poster this picture i don't know what it means but it sure looks good okay so this is when this movie i'm gonna say officially goes off whatever rails it was on was it on any rails to begin I, with I, it was on something because this is this is going I think to another flies off to another dimension yeah this is like no longer attached to earth anymore like we're in outer space at this point (laughs) we've we've left orbit so after this they make their way back up to the cabin and he is starting to find out find these Polaroid pictures of their son and the shoes are on the wrong feet yeah in all these pictures of their kid the shoes the kid's wearing are backwards and it turns out that the kid has this kind of deformity where his feet were busted it up because he was being forced to wear shoes backwards all the time. Yeah, they were shaped. They were growing incorrectly. Yes. This, I thought was fascinating. Just this little touch just to show you that this woman, she was crazy all along from the start. Oh, absolutely. She was out of her mind. I thought this was really, really interesting. This insinuates that deep inside of this woman was this, this identity just waiting to come out. It was it was just lurking under under the surface. It's scary when you think about it. Yeah. Like, like this is just waiting. And Will and the phone is in like the shed looking at these pics and all of a sudden we get one of the most effective jump scares I've ever seen in a movie ever. It's so loud and so crazy over the top. I jumped 10 feet. I was so surprised because this movie was pretty quiet and subdued for the most part and all of a sudden we get this insane jump scare where she hits him in the back of the head with this was it block, block of wood? wood or something. I guess it knocks him out. Yeah. They have sex after this? They do. She pulls his pants down and starts I guess like giving him an erection in some way, shape, or form and just jumps on it. After that, this is just like, what is happening? What's going on with these two people? Okay, so this is the scene where most people, I think, probably... This is when they fainted probably in cons. Faint, probably fainted in cons because she takes that block of wood and she gets off of his genitals and she bashes his testicles with it. Yeah, with this enormous <laughs> two by four. Yeah, it's like it's like, it's, it's like she, she took a piece of a split log that she had from a cord of wood and just bashed his scrotum as hard as she could into the floor of this barn. Remember what we said in the I Saw the Devil about that guy getting his balls bashed open with the the monkey wrench? Right. This is a 10 trillion times worse than that. And that was awful. They show this. Yeah, in that movie, it was kind of just obscured and and funny. In this, it's not amusing There's there's nothing funny about this. Not even close. I'm going to have to admit that I saw this the first time. This time, I literally closed my eyes and looked in another 
another direction. I had no desire to see this again. She bashes him so hard with this block of wood. He passes out from the pain. Understandably. We get one last shot of Willem Dafoe's penis for the road. (laughs) What for the road? (laughs) Yeah, she picks it up. She starts jerking it and blood shoots out of it. He ejaculates blood onto her blouse or shirt or... Was this necessary? Don't you get it? That's the lifeblood, Joel. Oh! Oh, okay. okay, Thank you. There's nothing necessary about this scene. (laughs) Nothing. No, not at all. This is so over the top. What was the point? What was the point of this? None. This had no point at all. You could have accomplished the same thing with her just like stabbing him or something with a knife. So while he's passed out from the pain, she takes a router and routes a hole by hand. It's not even like a power. It's like a by hand weevil and and drills a hole into his leg, takes a grindstone for an axe and takes the metal bar the grindstone is attached to and threads it through the calf muscle and then takes the other side, the, the bolt, and screws it on and then throws the monkey wrench that she uses to screw it on underneath the, the, the cabin so he can't get to it. What? What the hell? This is brutal. That is unbelievable. Yeah, now he can't get around because he's got this thing attached to his leg. It's crazy. How did he not die? Just from like shock, you mean? Yeah, because I guess chaos reigns. <laughs> you, you, you've forgotten. It was only one chapter before you forgot chaos reigns. You know, I like tried to like at least put out some theories as to what this meant. At the end of the day, who the hell knows? Who knows? How could you ever understand what this is supposed to mean. There's nothing that explains it. No, not at all. I was like, oh, maybe he's Prometheus because Prometheus was like chained to like with a, through the leg to a stone. No. Or, and, and it's just like, nope, that, that makes no sense. And like, it's just, it's just pointless. Really? Especially the way this movie mixes pain and pleasure and how it, it has a very anti-sex slant. All this stuff is going on. It's pretty crazy. I mean, before this insanity took hold, the, the wife, Charlotte Gainsbourg, she told us this little story that about the three beggars, which are these three animals that show up, and whenever they arrive, someone has to die. We've already met two. We met the fox. We met the deer. And now the third one shows up to Willem Dafoe, this bird. That he, yeah, it's like a crow this or crow. a raven or but something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brandon Lee. Willem Dafoe wakes up. This is awesome. Just physical acting, the way he wakes up. He starts convulsing because he's just, his body's going into shock from the pain. And he's like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, I was like, yeah, nice, bro. He starts to kind of crawl with this thing attached to his leg. This must have been the most painful thing. Mar- would you say that he was crawling in his skin? Those wounds? They will not heal. He gets outside of the barn and crawls into this foxhole. This just goes on and on and on and on with this crazy woman running around trying to find him. Her her acting was good in this. Yeah, thing. her acting was really good in this. So just to make a long story short, like she snaps out of her insanity and understands what she's done. Digs him out of the hole, brings him back to the house, and she decides to take matters into her own hands. I guess she believes that uh, women are evil or something. I guess she starts to believe that female sexuality is evil. I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming that's what she thinks. I don't even know where that comes from. No, I have no clue. I guess it's from that book she was writing. Then she grabs a rusty pair of scissors, Martin, and then what happens? <sighs> Because one scene of genital mutilation wasn't enough. No, no, no. Yeah, we need to. We need to see Charlotte Gainsbourg cut off what I believe is one of the most realistic looking prosthetic clitoris vaginas that I've ever seen in my life. It looks real to me. It looks, it looks real, doesn't it? Yeah. This is disgusting. She cuts her clitoris off with this scissors and this blood shoots. <laughs> it's disgusting. It is disgusting. You know, we were watching it with a girl in the room. Yeah. She, was, she, she wasn't having it. She was not okay with this and I wasn't okay with it. I, 
it's almost like it just would it, it, it just wouldn't end. Yeah, this movie was a nightmare that would never stop. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, this stuff is really, really over the top. Unnecessarily so, I think. What does it prove? What is it what, what do we gain from it? Could it have been accomplished in less heavy-handed means? Yes, absolutely. So really, like, what's the point? Okay, so she she screams out in pain, and, and it's <laughs> I think it's important to note that before she does this, she screams and it starts hailing outside. I'm like, is she like a, what, what is she? Witch? Is she a witch? Wiccan? <laughs> She's a Wiccan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she has a, she has a pentacle tattoo. Cool, bro. I don't, yeah, yeah, then, I don't get it. Yeah, it's at this point where the, the three animals, they show up and now that they're here, someone has to die. They start fighting each other. Willem Dafoe choke slams her into the squared circle. Yeah, it was impressive. Not since the big show have I seen a choke slam like this. This movie's over at this point, but uh, we can't leave without at least a few more weird imagery. He kills her. He burns her. <laughs> burns her in a funeral, <laughs> a funeral pyre. pyre. Yeah. yeah, burns her in effigy. Walks away out of the woods. As he's leaving the woods, we see all these dead bodies just appearing out of nowhere as he's walking away. And then finally... Was Lars von Trier a fan of drowning? pool? <laughs> Let the bodies hit the floor. That's Lauren. what happened. Before we end this movie, it's important to note that they have one more flashback before she cuts off her genitals. Oh yeah. This whole time this movie, we were under the impression that they had no idea that the little boy fell out of the window, but we get one last flashback that shows that while they were having sex, she saw the, the kid get the chair, put it to the window. She watched that whole thing from beginning to end yeah, and she, she let it happen. not care. She let it happen. She didn't care. That is intense. She was insane. I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from all this. Yeah, so as Willem Dafoe is leaving these demonic woods, all of a sudden, the, the three animals show up one more time. I thought they already got their blood, but I guess they, they want more. Yeah, they, it's never enough. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they're, they're hungry for blood. And then all of a sudden, 10 trillion women show up out of nowhere in the woods. They have no faces. Their faces are blurred out. What does that mean? It's like the Wicker Man or something. I did not understand this at all. Like a reverse Wicker Man. I, I, I did what not get- What does this mean? I guess we could debate this until the end of time, but what the hell is going on <laughs> the here? The scholars and the philosophers can debate this to the end of time. Yeah, Willem Dafoe is surrounded by these women and then it ends. I assume they kill him. I don't know. Either that or he's their new king. Oh, okay. Of, of course. <laughs> Tyrannus. Okay, and that's it. That's uh, Antichrist. Let's find out what the real critics have to say about this movie. Antichrist ends up being more unnerving than it is terrifying and a lot funnier than it's supposed to be. Peter Howell, Toronto star. Artfully horrific but artificial and soulless. Joe Newmayer, New York Daily News. And finally, the scandal of Antichrist is not that it is grisly or upsetting, but that it is so ponderous, so conceptually thin, and so dull. A.O. Scott, New York Times. Okay, Martin, this movie currently holds a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes, but is it really that bad? I'm gonna say, yeah, 48%'s probably pretty accurate for this movie. Look, I'm going to probably just mirror what those three critics said, and it's and it's this. This movie is beautiful looking, but conceptually it's too obtuse. I, I think a lot of it was done to try and be thought-provoking, but there's nothing in and of itself in the story that makes you think. My biggest complaint for this movie is that there's no story arc. There just isn't one. Like, I understand that, that their child dies and that they go in, I guess, their own minds to try and deal with the problem, but it doesn't stay there. It immediately goes to this weird abstract thing that I just I guess maybe I'm just not smart enough to get it I don't How I, does this compare to gothic with you? <sighs> 
This is more entertaining to watch than gothic. You know, like visually. I, this I was is, thinking about gothic while we were watching. This, this. is visually interesting, but it, in the same way, the story just is nonsensical. I'm going to give it a two out of five with the caveat that if you can't deal with gruesome imagery, just don't watch this movie at all because this is probably one of the most gruesome movies you can you can see. Okay, 48% is really that bad. Hmm. That's a tough question. I'm going to be a little more generous than you. I'm going to give this a three for two reasons. One, this movie's gorgeous. It is gorgeous. Some of the things that he does with the camera in this movie, it really needs to be seen to be believed. Like, it's so beautiful, some of the shots in this. And two, the reason I'm, I'm going to be a little more fair with my review is that a movie like this, it will generate debate. It will generate discussion. You'll sit around and you'll talk about, well, like, what the hell did that mean? What's going on? There's merit to that, that, that a movie will stick with you long enough that you'll want to think about it and debate it. Yeah, no, this movie is definitely going to stick with me just because it generated controversy. And also, I don't get it. I yeah, don't, I don't get it either. I don't get it. And I, I want to. I want to try to crack the code. I want to understand what what he's trying to tell me. I feel like this movie demands multiple viewings, but uh, I don't feel like watching it again <laughs> anytime soon. I mean, I've, I've seen it twice. I gleaned more from it the second time, but I still am like, what is going on? I don't I don't get this. Yeah. So this isn't really like a, a jokey, haha kind of movie to laugh at. This is like more of a serious kind of thing. It's funny that uh, as an art film, it succeeds, right? Ab- absolutely. It does what it's supposed to do. It pushes the boundaries of how to tell a story. That's that's what it does. Yeah. It absolutely does that. As a feature film, is it something that uh, an, an audience, a large audience is going to enjoy? Absolutely, no. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's merit in that. It's good to push the boundaries of storytelling and how you can go about to illustrate ideas in the medium of film. And, and that's, that's what he's doing. Okay, let's read read some listener mail. Mark writes in, he wants to tell us a secret about the fifth element. Did you know that the junkie with the hat is Matthew Kasovitz, the male lead in Amelie, and Martin, the director of Babylon AD? Oh, thank God. You remember that one? Of course. Jay writes in and says, Hey guys, love your podcast. The chemistry of you three in a room together is just amazing. And unlike every other podcast I listen to, you're not stepping over yourselves trying to talk. You actually seem to listen to each other. You have the great work. It seems like everybody who writes in tries to guess what you guys look like. So I thought I'd change it up and analyze your comedic styles. Martin has a clever, dry delivery marked with occasional hilarious explosions of disbelief, reminding me of Jon Stewart or Larry David. Kevin has an enthusiastic, incredibly honest delivery that reminds me of Owen Wilson and Jay Baruchel. And Joel is the comics comic who chooses his words very carefully and his emphasis on delivery can make any sentence funny, like Mitch Hedberg or Will Ferrell. I had one question about a weird thing I noticed going through the old episodes. Martin. You're like, I can't sleep it. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't eat it. I can't sleep about it. No, uh, I, I, that's, that's something that I do, I think. Mannerisms. There you go. There you go. I'll change it. <laughs> no, don't, don't you dare. Oh, oh, all right. Don't change for me. Change for you. John writes in and says, greetings, three musketeers of movie mockery. My name is John. I'm a longtime listener. I believe I remember one of you saying in a past episode that they worked in a movie theater and I'm applying for a job at my local cinema. I was wondering what I would expect to do at the theater when I started. And I was hoping one of you would have some tips and tricks for a rookie. Happy reviewing. I worked at the movie theater 
theater in my local town and I served popcorn soda <laughs> yeah. and I tore ticket stubs up and directed people to the proper theater for viewing. What to expect? It's boring. It's boring, humdrum. But you know what? I mean, if you're in high school, why not? Some money. And uh, you get the upside is you get to watch movies for free. Yeah, the equivalent of that is I, I worked in an arcade, which is the exact same thing you just said. But the, the difference is I got free video. I got to play free video games. Right. But you got to see free movies, which I think is better. Yeah. That's much better. I agree. But the movie theater I worked in had the lowest possible quality screen. Yeah, that was and a audio. piece of cr- If it's a theater, I think it is. That it is. is. A piece it's the theater you think it is. It absolutely is. It is abominable. <laughs> Okay, and finally, Justin writes in and says, Ahoy, Joe, Martin, and Kevin. It's been a while since I've written in, but last night something happened that gave me some major deja vu. While eating sushi out in Beverly Hills with my girlfriend, she suddenly leaned in close. I thought she was going to whisper something hot and tempting. And she said, Oh my God, that's Jesse Spano. I said, Who the hell is that? To which she replied, You know, Elizabeth Berkeley. I quickly began spinning my head like a twister or a man on fire. And then I saw her sitting at the sushi bar was our very own national treasure, Nomi Goddess Malone. I was erupting with joy like Dante's Peak and seriously considered breaking up with my girlfriend and making a proposal then and there. That was when I noticed an even greater sight. Sitting next to her was a total 5 out of 5 dashing debonair beefcake who looked like he could sucker punch me into the day after tomorrow. I instantly recognized him as aid from Batman Forever (laughs) and most motorcycle gang member from Batman and Robin. Could it be? It was. The triumphant return of Greg Lauren, nephew of fashion designer Ralph Lauren, and cover artist of four issues of John Constantine Hellblazer. Realizing a confrontation with Greg Lauren would result in my darkest hour and a one-way trip to the underworld, I decided to jingle all the way back to my table. So that's what happened. By the way, did you guys know she was an S? Dargo. Elizabeth Berkeley was? Yeah, she was an S. Dargo. I didn't know that. We say S. Darko constantly. We've never seen it. No. Will we see it for the show, Martin? I hope not. <laughs> hey, well, you never know, Martin. Your yeah, future is looking true. pretty bright. Oh, great. Okay, there you go. Yours and Quaid, Justin. Okay, thanks for those emails, guys. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at yasthatbad at gmail.com. Okay, now it's time to announce next week's movie. Next week's movie, we'll be watching the 1997 classic. Starship Troopers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Neil y- Patrick Harris. You love neon plastic fiddles, right? Yeah, those are my favorite kind. They have a bunch of them in this movie movie you're in luck every scene someone's playing a plastic see-through fiddle love those things jake Busey. oh man can't wait <laughs> neil patrick harris is psychic i hope you like co-ed showers martin i can't get enough co-ed showers and i can't get enough of putting my hand on giant larvae and reading their mind okay to the next week when we'll be watching starship troopers okay thanks for listening to the show if you like what you've heard please consider subscribing we have a new episode every tuesday please help support the word of the show by liking us on facebook facebook.com slash yes that bad please leave us a positive review on itunes those five-star reviews really do help about the show. You can follow the show on Twitter at yeah, it's Bad. You can follow Marna yeah, it's Marnie. You can follow Kevin at yeah, it's Kev. And you can listen to the show on your mobile devices via Stitcher. You can get that at Stitcher.com. Don't forget to get our latest premium podcast at yeahitsthatbad.bandcamp.com. And you can listen to all our previous episodes at yeahitsthatbad.com. Thanks for listening to the show. See you next time.
I would probably have this fear that like, oh no, I've gone crazy. Oh no, I've gone insane. Hmm. Because I just saw a fox talking to me and I know that foxes can't speak English. But the fantastic Mr. Fox could speak English. You're right, he could. And he had a lot of great plans and schemes. Yeah, so <laughs> who knows? Maybe just Wes Anderson planted that thing there. Uh, 